0: Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12, the first 12 verses. Uh, Before I read our passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that you bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father and our God, we come again before you this morning in the name of Christ. We thank you for the great privilege it is to hear your word to us that you gave by your Holy Spirit, uh, by which you inspired the evangelist Luke. And we also thank you that your Holy Spirit has preserved this word for us and that by this word you infallibly teach us. We ask, Father, as your word is read this morning and as it is preached, that I would fade and that Christ Jesus would be magnified. We ask that your word would not go, uh, return back unto you void, but rather would go forth in power, that you would accomplish what you intend by it, that you would teach us, correct and reprove us, instruct us in all righteousness that we might be thoroughly furnished to every good work in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we ask, Father, that we would indeed give ourselves to hear that your word might not be snatched from us by the devil, that your word might not be uh, burnt by the son of tribulation and trouble and trial, that it would grow deep within us and that it would not be choked out by the thorns of worldly desires and pleasures, but that we would put you first in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word from the first twelve verses of the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 12. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another... He began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. ye are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you unto synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, Take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. In the context of this passage, as we've seen, uh, maybe not last week, but the previous two weeks, uh, he had gone into the house of the Pharisee. And there, as he was uh, being hosted, he uh, rebuked them for their external religion and the lack of, of religious power in their hearts. He also reprimanded the scribes that, that led the people down this path of corruption and external religion, a religion that had no power, that did not look for blessings from God, but for uh, worldly uh, congratulations, that it was hallowed. And worse than aloe, it was corrupting of the people, and that it also uh, tended to, uh, uh, to corrupt one's own faith. Here he warns his disciples of, how, of that same uh, sin that he rebuked in the scribes and the Pharisees. He warns his own followers, he warns you and me, of the leaven of hypocrisy. Leaven because it works secretly in the heart. Leaven because it is that which, once it gets in there, is very hard to root out. Leaven because it will affect all things. And we need to be on our guard against it. In this passage, though, what connects them all together is the description that we, we see in these instructions and these promises he, he gives some negative uh, warnings. He gives some positive encouragement uh, throughout these 12 verses. But at the, the root of it, we learn that hypocrisy is basically the fear of men over the fear of God. This is what connects all these different things together. And so we will look at, at that aspect of hypocrisy, why it does that and and why we ought to be wary against it. And then we will look also at the joy and the goodness and the great improvement of a genuine true faith and fear of God. So hypocrisy is the fear of man over the fear of God. Uh, The hypocrite, in fact, does not fear God at all. It's not that he denies God's existence. After all, the hypocrite proclaims himself to be a disciple of God. He proclaims himself to be a follower of God. Christ does not levy these uh, accusations against the libertines and the drunkards and the whoremongers and the extortioners and the publicans of his day. He doesn't level these accusations against the heathen of his day. He levels these accusations against the, the, the esteemed members of the church of the day. So yes, hypocrisy does acknowledge God but it does not in fact hear God one of the things and the tricks of a hypocritical heart and and by the way this is what we do when we sin as well I mean how many of you sin knowingly that God is looking upon you at that very moment how many of you uh, confess and rehearse in your mind the infinite uh, wisdom of God the omniscience of God and his seriousness about holiness and then go on and do something sinful We don't generally do that. We either forget God for the moment, or we assume that God is not going to take notice for one reason or another. And the hypocrite tends to believe that God is too big to take notice. This is why, by the way... In part of the encouragement of his disciples to stand against hypocrisy seems a little bit out of place, but in context, it's perfectly understandable in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two fatherings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Hypocrisy destroys that confidence. You know, uh, This is probably a little bit out of date by now, but there was a movement in the early part of the 21st century, the New Atheism. It was all the rage on college campuses. It was all the rage on the Internet where stupid things are, the rage even to this day. And a part of the argument of the New Atheism is that um, if there were a God, he certainly wouldn't be mindful of us. After all, we live in a universe where our own technology, our own uh, scientific investigations shows just how small we are in our solar system. And our solar system is one star of innumerable stars in a galaxy. And outside of our galaxy, as far as those telescopes can penetrate, there are other galaxies. And we can't even count the galaxies, much less count the stars and we, we compare that to our own attention. You know, we, we care about things that are human. And we care about things that are not quite human but are big enough to bother us. Uh, we could go even quite small to, to little bugs that bother us. But there is, you know, you could go smaller still and eventually we just stop caring. In my library, I have lots of old books. And in those old books live lots of little bugs and you'll never see them. Ever so often, you catch one going across the page, and he is so tiny that you can't even kill it doing that to it. And things are, these are things we just don't care about. As long as it's not a silverfish crawling in my books, I'm okay that it's a little ecosystem. And we tend to think God is like that. That He's too big to care about humanity, and if he does care about humanity, certainly he cares about the great and the pompous, uh, the, the, way, the course of nations and the course of civilizations, uh, the course of these, uh, these, those that put themselves in the place of justice, but he doesn't really care about us. If you read the great moral philosophers of, of Greece and Rome, and they were good moral philosophers. What they have to say positively is often uh, quite helpful even for Christians to read. Yet, it tends to be all generalities. And they often excuse themselves in their personal sort of peccadilloes and their personal shortfallings because really the great judge of the universe is too big to care. You find this in the, the Psalter, put in the, the, the mouths of those that are wicked. A, a picture of hypocrisy in Psalm 10, verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. And it goes on in verse 11. He says, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He'll never see it. Or if you go to Psalm 73, also a good psalm, opening the heart of the iniquity. Uh, he says in verse 11, they say, those that are hypocrites, how does God know? And there is is there any knowledge in the most High? And then they also go to Psalm 94 uh, verses um, uh, verse seven. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall God of Jacob regard it. We tend to think of God's infiniteness is a bigness. And sometimes, if we're honest, we kind of think of God being everywhere. as like a big blob where part of God is over there and part of God is over here. And he just sits over the universe, right? And is whatever that is, that is spirit. But understand, that's not what we mean when we say God is infinite. God is without limits, both great and small. When we say God is everywhere, we don't mean that God is so big that part of Him's over there, part of Him's over there, and part of Him's wherever you can be. We mean that any of the smallest point, God is completely and totally there. So, in a way, we're saying God is infinitely small. And when we say he has no limits, that means he doesn't have a limit on his capacity to give attention. He's not like your iPhone that after you take so many pictures, you've got to start offloading them somewhere because you need to create more room on your hard drive. Or if we learn too much, we start forgetting other things. God is not like that. God has an infinite capacity. That for all those universes. Oh, right. When you know all those galaxies, all the stars, all the planets, all the particles, all the creatures in this planet, all the, the things that go on, all the hearts of men are equally before him. He can give full attention, total attention to every single thing. There is no distraction with God. That is our great to remember that is our great uh, uh, cordial against, or our, our medicine against hypocrisy. But the hypocrite doesn't think that way. If I can't see it, if it's too little for me to take notice, then by arguing less to greater, God certainly doesn't take notice of me. And if he did, the idea is that God is too bothered to make judgments. Uh, that, that God, I mean, why would God bother? To bring my sins into condemnation. If it didn't bother anybody else, or anybody else of importance, or anybody else that I care about, we tend to, to make excuses uh, about that. Uh, we define what doesn't bother other people according to our own whims very often. But nevertheless, it says if, if I'm not bothered by it, God that's not going to bother. Notice that that's not the way Jesus thinks or wants you to think. He says in verse 4, uh, Fear not those that can kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed have power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear ye him. And also in verse 8 and 9, uh, the, the importance of having that confession before the, the eternal heavenly court that confess Christ before men, the temporal vanishing of whatever, you know, whatever it costs you to testify to Jesus Christ, it pales in comparison to the approval of Christ owning you and, and backing you up and confessing you before the court of God's angels. But to the hypocrite, God is too bothered uh, to make judgment. He's too busy in those things. But again, the infinitude of God means that that he is to be feared. Because of this lack of fear of God, the hypocrite then never looks beyond this life in with any seriousness. We saw that in uh, the woes he pronounces upon the Pharisees. Uh, verse 42, 43, and 44. Uh, they're minding the little things and not the, the true things of God, 42, but... 43, then, when they mind those little things and the external things, then what they seek from God becomes external, like the chief seats at the synagogues and the dinners. And they're not really looking for God's blessing. Well, this is the way they are. And because what's real is what's in this life, then, then the idea is that secrets can be kept well enough. And that as long as I am being very good with my secrets, then I don't have to really fear if, if the iniquity of my heart gets out. The perversions of my heart or the injustice of my heart uh, is made known. But Jesus starts off this warning in verse two and three. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be made known. Whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which ye has spoken in the ear and closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Jesus uses this, this analogy in several different ways. In chapter 8, he talked about how the gospel itself cannot be hid from the world. There's good things that men try to hide and, and try to suppress that come out. But there are bad things that men try to hide and, and keep away from others that will also come out. They think they can keep their secrets That is a falsehood. But they also, in this worldly mindedness, then put their fear and power on those who have the ultimate to do in worldliness. Uh, In in Jesus' day, and most of the day, the one who holds the ultimate power is the one that has the power of death. Jesus tells us not to fear him in verse 4. But a hypocrite cannot but fear him because all all his religion is in this life. And not just those that might kill the body, but really and truly they fear also those that can take away prosperity. Or those that can take away a good name. Or those that can make your life uncomfortable. Then become the greatest picture of evil in that sort of mind. I mean, isn't that really what motivates a great deal of modern society's very sensitiveness that it can't stand to be offended by what others are doing? We see this in the book of Revelation. The mark of the beast uh, then is, is powerful and influential and, and a temptation because they make it whatever it was and whatever it may be uh, it, it is the key to economic well-being. You can't buy or sell unless you have that. And because of that uh, those that aren't Christ will fall away and they won't persevere. Hypocrites will out themselves because <laughs> They don't fear God, and they're willing to to trade a confession of heavenly blessing for what they consider to be the reality of earthly good. But we need to understand, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, all passes away here. True discipleship, true discipleship fears God like we have in verse 4 and 5, 5 particularly, and it doesn't fear. It fears God and fears not. Because it fears God, I mean that's it's, it. Seems almost like an unintelligible transition if you're looking at these verses by themselves and not looking at the greater context. He says, "But I will forewarn you, whom ye shall fear. Fear him which hath killed, who after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him." And then he goes on in the same breath. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. Does Jesus say fear him and then fear not, therefore, is a contradiction? I think all of us trusting in Jesus Christ understand the solution to that. They understand what Jesus is getting for it. That we fear and revere and respect the judgment of God. We recognize that it is real and serious and we have to deal with it. But once we have dealt with it, once we are seeking our friendship with God, once that we are reconciled to him, we don't find him to be a tyrant. We find him to be a loving father. That we didn't really have to fear in the first place. Not in the way that we fear man. Because they're just as fickle as we are. We know how unreliable another person is because we know how unreliable we are. But when we find God of all grace and mercy, loves us, is in so intent for loving sinners that he sent his only son to die and be raised again that we might have life, then there's no really calls of trepidation before him. He knows who we are. And we could serve him with joy and all the it's a fear, but it's a fear that loses all of its terror. The Lord's judgment, though, is decisive and it has to be central. He is not to be trifled with uh, Solomon uh, in the Ecclesiastes, uh, the, the book that teaches us that all is vanity, vanity of vanity, all is vanity is all passing away. And yet that doesn't mean that foolishness and wisdom, while they have in this life the same end, are irrelevant and not different. He says in the end, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That motivates us to fear God. That is the seriousness and we know that a superficial confession won't hold. When he's saying, You confess me before men, uh, I will confess you in the gates of heaven, or the courts of heaven, in, in, before the angels in verse 9, uh, 8. And then verse 9, If you deny the Son of Man, Christ, before men, you will be denied in heaven. And he, and he makes sure in verse 10, now these words and, and Matthew and other contexts speak to that sin that won't be forgiven. It speaks to it here, that apostasy, that knowing, intentional apostasy. Uh, But it's given here just to kind of separate a false confession and a true confession. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done wondrous works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You want to know what Jesus is talking about in verse 9? Those that will be denied in the court of heaven? Well, that's the picture that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. And it ought to cause us to pause and seek to take God seriously, that we might not have this false confession, this superficial confession, but that we might know that we know the Lord Jesus Christ and are known of him. But this fearful Lord is ever merciful and loving. There's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that the Lord doesn't take notice of. There's not a head on your head that isn't numbered. And he tells you, fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows, verses 6 and 7. Even in verse 10, that great uh, trepidation warning against apostasy, notice how he begins with it. He says in, in verse 10, he says, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. And just Paul's there. Note how deep the grace of Christ is. You know, Paul was right there in the position of authority as As the deacon Stephen was being stoned to death, approving of what they did, thinking he served God by doing so, recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit in the sermon of Stephen, the evangelist. And Paul is able to say, I found mercy. You know, unbelief itself is not the unforgivable sin, or rather the sin that won't be considered. Given It's the, the in the face of the power of the Holy Spirit where you reject the grace of God knowing it to be the grace of God. It's not forgiven because you won't seek forgiveness for it. It's the hard heart. It's the heart of an apostate. But those that fear the Lord, notice that even blasphemy against Christ and the Father will be forgiven. That's the... The greatness of his merciful love and and also that he will supply us in the day of trouble verses 11 and 12 you ought not even to worry about when you're brought into the presence of the synagogue the magistrates and the powers he he raises us up the the synagogues are where his disciples that were right there were going to find many of them find their end But some that didn't were brought before the Roman magistrates, where Christ himself found his end before it was the beginning. But he brings it all to the powers, the very general thing, so that it speaks to every one of us in every age. That, yeah, we are going to have to be brought to account. We're going to be challenged by the world. We are going to be brought into uh, persecution. It may not be the same for everybody, but we don't have to worry if we got the formula of what to say in the situation. As long as we trust in the Lord, we're going to Him in prayer. That we're depending and trusting on Him, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. You read the history of the martyrs; uh, that includes the early church, the Reformation martyrs, missionary martyrs. Uh, they, at their last moment, in their their great, you don't find anybody that is martyred or a stammering tongue, Uh, and some of them may have slurred or or, or, uh, stammered in in reality, but none of them said wrong things. They spoke with the power of God. They spoke uh, with grace. They spoke with the testimony. Christ was there even in that midst. Now, not always to martyrdom. I mean, the martyrdom is the ones we remember, But even in the sacred history of the New Testament, we find that uh, Paul is brought before Felix and Festus, and he has the words to say at the proper time and way. The Holy Spirit is there to... uh, He he won't just help us. He will do it for us. He will supply, uh, be our supply in the day of trouble. And then the approval, verse 8, is eternal. This is... This is what we have to beware of. This is the, the way that, that hypocrisy undoes the blessings. Because when we lose sight of the fear of God, then we start to fear men. We lose, thought, we lose the blessing and we reap the anxiety. And so what we want to do, because while I have it a great hopes that there's not a hypocrite here, the thing about hypocrites you never know, But I have great confidence there's not a hypocrite here. But I know my heart. And I know the way that the scriptures describe the human heart. And so I know that we all have moments of hypocrisy. Where we lose the fear of God and we start fearing man. And we need to repent and come back. Because it is so much far a greater blessing to fear God. And then what do we have to fear? So heed Christ's warnings. What he says in verse 2 and 3, the truth will out. So why not come to terms with it now? That's not to say that you, you proclaim all your secret sins to everyone. I mean, not everybody needs to know it. But God needs to know that you acknowledge it before him. That you're telling him. He knows it anyway. Why not tell it? Why not be honest with him? You will find when you are that your prayers become so much more powerful that you, you do understand God is hearing you. And here's the thing He came to save sinners. It's not like you're going to tell something that disqualifies you from salvation. Right? In fact, the more sin you confess, as Paul kind of says in Romans, uh, the more sin abounded, the more grace abounded. The more you know you're a sinner, the more you know Christ loves you. Because he came to say sinners. It's the Pharisees who were sinners but didn't acknowledge it that received the condemnation of Christ Jesus. And when it comes to men, why fear of vanity? The worst they can do is kill the body. Everything they can do is done. But you're just entering onto eternity at that point. If they approve of you, you know, men, men, women, the world, it approves lots of things and then stops approving of them. There's fads. Things become popular and not popular. The, the approval of man is as fickle as his fashion. So why not seek the approval of him who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow for all eternity? And then let's not just focus on the negative and the fearful. Let's also realize that Christ is not just giving warnings. He's also giving assurances and promises. So let's take Christ's assurances to heart. We remember that he calls sinners. So there's no need to have a pretend piety. And there's no need to fear rejection. And Remember what he says in verse 4. four. Not the, the substantial part, but just the way he addresses this. This is, and I say unto you, my friends, if he is your friend, there is no enemy to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? What charge can you lay to Christ elect? If, he, I mean, and what can't be covered by the blood and resurrection Of Jesus Christ. We're fixing to to take of the supper. Part of the supper. Is that renewal of those covenant promises. Where we take the the signs and seals. Of the body and blood of Christ. Where we are by the Holy Spirit. uh, Healed. And strengthened. But also we testify to the world. That this is our life the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Let's go to it with the confidence that as we partake of it, and as we confess Christ in it, that Christ confesses us before the heavenly courts. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ again, and we thank you for your mercy and love to us. We ask your Lord as we turn to this table that you would bless the communion that we have with Christ and his body and blood, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we might go forth fearing you and fearing nothing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the first two stanzas of 362, Blessed Assurance.